All right, we will uh, resume First John this morning. If you've been around Christian churches for any length of time, you know that they are like families, and like families, we have our moments, too. We have our moments of disagreements, uh, differing opinions on everything from hiring staff to style of music, Sunday school curriculum, to um, views on the end times. And just like with families, those are things that with patience and humility and grace and deference, we, we often can work through, we can listen better and, and strive for the unity that we have amidst the diversity that we are in terms of the body of Christ. Uh, some matters can be handled more easily than others and can be worked through. Other matters are, are even more difficult to reconcile. Uh, the common one that's being discussed now in the evangelical world is can a church have women as pastors or elders? That is one of those that, as a church, you, you really can't hold both sides. You can't say, we'll agree to disagree and, and, and hold both views. You really have to come down on one side or the other. But then there are these issues that are primary issues. Matters of salvation. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is it that saves a person from the wrath of God? Who is Jesus Christ? Is God's word an authority? Is, is it the authority that, that God has revealed to us? What, what are your understanding of the, the scriptures? On, on these kinds of crucial issues, there really must be agreement in order to say that this is a Christian church. If we cannot get the gospel right, then, then it really isn't a church. And so these are essential issues. And this morning in 1 John chapter 2, it's these kind of primary issues that are in focus for John as he is writing to local churches that are striving to hold firm and to stand firm on the gospel, but that have been dealing with people who have left the churches and left over their understanding of Jesus Christ, left over the, the, the questions about the person of Jesus Christ. And so they have changed in their views about Jesus, and they have left the church. And that caused at least two dilemmas for John's readers. First one is just the, the basic doctrinal issue. What, what do we do now? These people say this about Jesus. We understand what the apostles have taught us, what Jesus claimed, um, but... but now these guys are saying something different. Can they reconcile this? Are both views compatible? Is there room for compromise? Can both sides have a measure of truth and just need more understanding? That's the first point that he has to really address. And then the second is, if not, if that's not the case, if the apostles' teaching cannot be changed, if the gospel cannot be tweaked in, in some way, if the person of Jesus Christ is who Jesus said he is and the apostles' teaching is accurate, then what do we do with these people who once were part of the body, who, who once participated in the life of the local church and who have now left and are holding divergent views? They professed faith in Christ. They may still see themselves as followers of Jesus. How do we treat them? And those are questions that John's going to address some of this really is getting to matters that have been behind uh, different points we've already seen in 1 John. This is the place where he kind of finally gets down to, this is sort of the, the controversy, if you will, that he's dealing with. But we've seen those passages about some who are claiming to be sinless and some who are claiming to have fellowship with God while walking in the darkness, some who claim they know Jesus but don't obey his commands. We've seen all those references in 1 John. This is where he sort of gets us to the place of understanding this is actually what the believers were facing, and it was the, the question of those who left, who, who changed their views on Jesus and left the church. 
Questions like those are not just relevant to first century Christians. Throughout church history, these dilemmas have remained. First of all, what about people within the church who believe and maybe even start to teach things that are not true, that are perhaps just in error, but in some cases are just out and out false? What happens? What do we do in that case? In the Discover book that we use in our membership class, we spend a whole unit on sound doctrine, the idea that Doctrine is teaching, and so it must conform to the scriptures for it to be sound doctrine uh, for what you hear on Sunday mornings, for what we do in our ministries. It must proclaim the truth of God's word and be accurate according to scripture. Otherwise, we are doing you a disservice, if not sinning against you. Ephesians 4, when it describes the giving of various gifts to the church, one of the things it speaks of is shepherds and teachers that are given to the church to help build up the body so that we may no, no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The premise of him saying that is there are deceitful schemes within the church. There is cunning. There are those who are advocating for different points of view. There are winds of false doctrine. And so all of that is happening. And so he is urging that there be those who would ground the church in what is true. And that's why Titus 1.9 says an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. False teaching must be confronted. John was not facing an unusual or an isolated problem in what he was writing about. False teaching and serious doctrinal error have always been challenges for the churches, and that's why then in those requirements for elders, they'd be able to articulate sound doctrine and, and contradict that, go against, oppose that, which, which would go against the truth. They'd be, they're able to rebuke that. But besides matters of doctrine, Churches have also faced this other dilemma that John is addressing here, and that's the one that arises when someone who has been present in a local church, who has been active in some way in a local church, who has perhaps professed faith in Jesus Christ, who has perhaps been baptized, who sings and claps and does all the stuff that they, they serve, they're involved in some way, and then, and then they sort of vanish or they they go into sin and, and they are unrepentant in their sin or they move in their belief about Jesus Christ and they begin to walk further and further away and despite the appeals from the body, from the elders, from others, they cease to walk in the light and they leave. We've all had that experience in, in, in some way or another. Um, it may be a pattern of unrepentant sin. Um, where a person is called to turn from a, a, a way that they are continuing to walk, or it may be what's more commonly described these days as deconstructing one's faith, the idea of um, becoming skeptical about elements of the gospel and starting to doubt them and ultimately just saying, that's it, I, I have to find something else. I don't believe this anymore. What do we do in those cases? How do we address that? And, and John's readers, just like we, when we face that, it can be confusing, it can cause questions, and John's dealing with that a little bit here. So those are the, the, the primary dilemmas we'll see as we walk through 1 John 2. And we're going to go verses 18 to 28. I, I know if you look at the chapter there, you see it ends with 29. It's probably an unfortunate chapter break. 29 goes more with the next section that Pastor Stewart will preach next Sunday. But I'm going to read the whole section, 1 John 2. This is 18 through 28, and then we'll go back through it. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Two categories of people who are central to this passage. We'll deal with the first ones, the antichrists, as he describes them, and then the believers there in the churches that he's writing to, the ones who are, he is giving assurance to. So the antichrists and the assured ones. For as common as the term antichrist is in Christian vernacular, it is not nearly as common in the New Testament. In fact, it's only found in 1 John and 2 John. These are the only places that use that term. And in verse 18, John says that there is this common expectation of the rise of Antichrist. He says there, he doesn't put an article in front of it, but the rise of Antichrist. And in fact, there are many Antichrists, and that is all coinciding with what he describes as the last hour. He says this is, this is just indicative of the period we are in. in. In the outfolding of God's plan, this coming forth of Antichrist is what's to be expected. Uh, there, there's a sense in, in John's writing in which he uses last hour as a way of speaking of the period inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the fact that God the Son came in flesh, that he gave his life on the cross and died for sin and then rose again, inaugurates what is this final stage in God's unfolding in human history as we know it. And, and it is during this period of time that the gospel is being widely proclaimed. Uh, there is still strong opposition to the gospel, but ultimately this last hour will end with the coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns and he judges humanity, that then is the close of that part of human history and we move on into the, the kingdom of God and the rest of eternity. And so when he says last hour, he's speaking of now that Christ has come, now that he has died and risen again, the arising of opposition to Christ is an indicator of the fact that we are in the last hour. There are many coming forward who oppose him. Uh, one, and he seems to describe here, one antichrist in particular, supernaturally driven, perhaps powerful enemy of believers may yet emerge, but what his point here is already in the first century, there is this flowing forth of those who are called antichrists, who are trying to change the truth about Jesus Christ. And most remarkably, his point here early on is that their place of origin is the local church. They have come from among us. They have come from within what we perceive to be the body. They went out from us. And he goes on to emphasize their, their lying and their deception. When we think anti, 
we think, uh, opposed to, against. Um, and, and yet his point here is not so much to say that these are ones who are out to sort of destroy Christians, not so much persecutors of Christians. The, the emphasis here is that they are antichrist in that their beliefs and their teachings are entirely contrary to that which is true about Jesus Christ. They are undercutting the truth that you have been taught in some way. Look at verse 22 again. 22 and 23 are really central to this whole section. He says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. All right, here's, here's the thing about false teachers, what we can surmise um, from what we know a little bit about late first century and some of the opposition that was coming to Christianity is they were probably not going around saying, well, Jesus is not the Christ. That, that would be sort of obvious. We, we would look at that and go, well, that's, that's not very deceitful. They are just coming out and saying, no, Jesus is not the Christ when we've been taught that Jesus is the Christ. And so that's probably not what they are doing as it's so contrary to what the Christians had been taught. John's purpose statement of his gospel, John 20, 31, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the what? The Christ, the son of the living God, so that you would now believe and have eternal life. And so the whole emphasis has been believing that Jesus is the Christ. And so it would have been very hard to gain any traction in your false teaching if your opening line out of the box was, Jesus is not the Christ. Most would have said, well, no, we're rejecting that, turning from it. But these are deceitful liars. What they're trying to do is gut the meaning of Christ. They're trying to take away the substance of what it means to be the Christ. And that's significant. If you go back in history to the Jews and their messianic expectations, there is the, the awaiting of one who is anointed by God. That's what the, the, the Christ is, the anointed one. Messiah was the was a way of transliterating the, the Hebrew word for anointed one. And so it's the, the, the terms are similar. In John 1.41, when Andrew meets Jesus and he goes and finds Peter, John records it this way. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. It's John's sort of instructive way in his gospel of saying Messiah and Christ are, are, are two ways of saying the anointed one of God. False teachers are surely not denying that. They undoubtedly conceded the fact that Jesus was a guy who had some kind of special anointing from God. But the difference now in understanding what that means, what the Christ means, is really as, as simple as thinking about even the, the Jewish messianic expectation. They expected an anointed one, but they were confounded by this one who came and suffered and died. That was not part of the, the package of what they were thinking the anointed one would do, that he would die at the hands of the Romans. They, they, they certainly did not have a belief that this anointed one was going to die and then be risen from the dead, because in fact, after he has risen from the dead and the testimony of the church is he is risen, the Jewish nation, for the most part, rejects him. They, they don't see that as part of what they anticipated in the Christ, in the Messiah, and so when John says that they denied that Jesus was the Christ, what he's really getting to is they are, they are now trying to pull all of the substance out of what the Christ means and, and simply narrow it down to just some anointed preacher, just some guy who goes around and speaks and seems to have a gifting from God. So 2 John 7, 2 John 7 helps us here. It says, many deceivers have gone out into the world 
those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. You see, that, that's as close as we get to the specific here of what John is confronting. They are, in some sense, denying the reality of Jesus's incarnation. In other words, they are taking all that is taught in, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. They're taking all that stuff and just saying, no, this, that wasn't this guy. This was just some anointed guy, the, the miracle of the incarnation and who Christ is. That's, that's the substance. When we say Jesus is the Christ, we're talking about the Son of God, the eternal Son of God now taking on flesh and now becoming fully God and fully man so that when he dies on the cross, his sacrifice is of value that it can save sinners. It is of infinite value because it is God who is actually giving himself in sacrifice. And it is God then who is being raised from the dead supernaturally. That's the part that, that really they're attacking when they get to the incarnation. That's why they are being branded as liars here because they're trying to take all of the substance that distinguishes Jesus as the Son of God, as God in flesh, as the Savior. They're trying to just gut all of that substance and, and just bring him back to just being an ordinary man in their mind. So what they taught perhaps was an early form of Gnosticism, which really develops more in the second century, but it's, we, we've mentioned this before, it's kind of that um, flesh bad, spirit good sort of mentality. I can do what I want in my flesh, it's, but my, my spirit is really what matters. And so some of that may be at play, that, that Jesus was really just some spirit form, that, that Gnosticism would go on to argue you, you can't take what's of God, what, what you say is perfect of God, and put it in flesh, that, that those two are just incompatible, and which, again, is denying the, the essence of the incarnation. So there could have been elements of that. One of the different errors that went around during the late first century, that Jesus of Nazareth was an ordinary man, that there was nothing spectacular about his birth, but that when he was baptized, we know the, the dove came down, this anointing came on him, God anointed him with his spirit, and they would also then have argued that that anointing was removed before Jesus died on the cross. So when he died, he was just an ordinary man. There was nothing atoning about his death, nothing saving in what he did. The Antichrists lied about Jesus, as false religions have always done. That's, that, the, the pattern of false religions is at some point you, you have to either dismiss the person of Jesus Christ as being just a good guy from 2,000 years ago who's inconsequential today, or you have to somehow theologically take him apart and say he's not who he claimed to be. And so you've got the Jehovah's Witness who would say that, that Jesus is a created being, created by God, uh, but that he was not God in flesh. You've got the Mormons who would say that he was a created being and that he somehow progressed to the point of, of deity eventually. You have Islam that denies that Jesus was God, that he was a prophet and, and would even argue that it wasn't actually Jesus that, that died on the cross. John is here to make clear that there is no room for compromise on our understanding of who Jesus is. Theologically, we talk about Christology. It's our understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And there is no room here for trying to tweak this, change this. Jesus must be fully God or his sacrifice is not sufficient to pay for sins. And he must be fully man and that he experienced all that in terms of temptation and, and, and the, 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 the things that we would experience and yet was without sin and then died a physical death and then rose in a resurrection body. 
the, the church of Jesus Christ is responsible to proclaim this truth of who Christ is and what he's done. Those who deny the identity that Jesus claimed for himself, that the apostles taught, not only separate themselves from Jesus, but verse 23 says they separate themselves from the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. There is no fellowship with God if you don't get Christ right, if you don't understand who Jesus is and believe in him as who he says he is. And so John is modeling for us the fact that there is this one apostolic doctrine about the person of Jesus Christ, and there is no room for blending that. So to go back to dilemma number one, is there any way we can still get along with these people, John? Not when it comes to this, no, no, there is, theologically you are at odds. You are in the light and they are in the darkness and they are completely wrong. And so we must confess Jesus as who he proclaimed to be. And the urgency, he mentions it, if you look at verses 24 and 25, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And, and, and it's as if John is saying, this is what's at stake here. It is the destiny of your soul. It, it, it is eternity here. He's already used that phrase from the beginning as he's talked to his readers, and we've seen it's not, it's not so much that he's emphasizing the beginning of creation, but, but he's used it to say, from your beginning as a believer in Jesus Christ, this, this, is what you, this is what saved you. This is the gospel that you believed. This is what you put your hope in. And so that has not changed. His message was the gospel that saved you has not changed. It is still the same truth from the beginning. And so what you heard Jesus proclaim, what the apostles have taught, walk in it. Believe it and walk in it. Remain in it. That's why false teaching that occurs within the church has to be confronted. It cannot be tolerated because the message of the Antichrist is not merely wrong, it is evil, and it is a matter of eternal destiny. And, and whether one will bear the wrath of God for all of eternity or one will spend eternity in his glorious presence. Now, with that in mind, then the other important truth we know about the Antichrist is what we read in verse 19, and that is this question of, they used to be here. They were physically present in the body. They, they, they may have professed to be believers, and then they abandoned the truth, and, and they parted ways. And what he's saying in verse 19 is once they did that, once they left us, they demonstrated that they were not of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so the, the picture here is not, not all who, who do Christian things, who go to a Christian church, who sing Christian songs and do Christian activities, necessarily are born again. It's possible to, to do things on a purely external sort of show basis, and that's what's going on here. And, and what he's saying is that they departed from the light and into the darkness, and when they did so, they proved that any claim of faith in Christ was spurious. It was not true. In, in a sense, I, I think we can compare this to the the conclusion in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives this steps to walk through when you have a, a brother or sister in Christ who has is, who is sinned against you, who is carrying on in sin in some way. And so you go to that 
professing brother or sister and you urge them to turn from their sin to repent. You, you tell them what the offense is and, and if that doesn't work, you bring witnesses and they're there to help clarify that you're not making a, a spurious charge but that there's actually some substance to what you're saying. And, and if you walk through this process and the outcome is that the person does not turn, they will not repent, they, they will not be obedient to, to Jesus Christ, then the outcome in Matthew 18, 17, it says, is to treat them as a, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's not saying treat him as an enemy. It's saying what culturally they understood as people of the world and, and treat him as an unbeliever. He is acting as an unbeliever. He does not experience or care for the, the joy of, of repenting of his sin and knowing forgiveness. And he will not repent. He will not turn. And so therefore, treat that person as an unbeliever, as somebody who needs to hear the gospel and needs to repent. It is, it is really hard for those of you that have walked this experience that, that you have had somebody in your life who professed to be a Christian who maybe was baptized and professed to be a Christian and then turns. No longer is caring about the gospel, no longer is walking with Jesus Christ, no longer is abiding in him. And that is just distressing. Somebody asked me in, in, in between the services, I think it's, it's fair to bring in, John doesn't bring it in here, but, but the, the prodigal. Yes, there, there are cases of people who do for a season um, carry on in disobedience, but the, the fact is, whether it's the prodigal or whether it's this person, our attitude as believers must still be they need to repent. The, the, the father of the prodigal didn't, didn't say to his son, I don't care, you just carry on. I know that you are, you're a good kid. You carry on and wallow in your sin and do what you want. There was still the desire when he came back to receive his repentance. And, and, and so when we experience this, what John is saying is there was not a genuine conversion in the first place because if they had been of us, then the mark is they would have continued with us. God's spirit would have continued to keep them abiding in Christ. So in effect, the lesson for the readers is treat the person as you would any unbeliever. Pray for them. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would open their eyes to his truth and that he would bring them to repentance when you have opportunities to interact with that person. Call that person to turn. It, it does no good for us or that person to pretend that, well, you once made a profession, you once went forward at a meeting or you, you were baptized and so therefore I know you're safe. It does no good if that person is persisting in unrepentant sin to act as if that's okay. That that's just another sort of brand of Christianity. What John's saying is they, they go out from us, then we have to treat them as those who have gone out from us because they are not of us. Pray that God would save that person. He or she needs Christ. And so John wants us to see these antichrists for who they are. One, so that we will not be deceived by their lies, so we would stand firm on what's true, but also so that we might see them as people in need of salvation. That's the Antichrist. John's letter is written to people he wants to assure. He wants to speak to believers, and he wants to give them encouragement in the midst of whatever might be confusing and causing questions. So those who remain in the body and have not turned. So he speaks assurance to them. Look at verse 20. But you, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 20, but they went out from us, they were not of us, but as for you, 
you have been anointed by the Holy One. Greek word for anointed that he uses there in verse 20 is chrisma, which you might say sounds like Christ, Christos, the, the word for Christ. And so it's almost a play on words that, that John is doing here when he says, the anointed, Jesus is the anointed one of God, and those then who abide in Jesus are anointed by the Holy One. The, the, the difference, if you will, between the, the one whose profession of faith is spurious and who goes off, and, and this one is, this was sort of a self-proclamation, a self-anointing. I am this, I, I say this. This one has been genuinely converted by God. It is the work of God in, in saving that person. It, it, the question then becomes, what does he mean by anointed by the Holy One? It's an unusual term. So if we go back to the Gospel of John, he uses the word holy as an adjective five times, once of the Father, once of the Son, and three times of the Holy Spirit. John chapter one, the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and so it speaks of the Holy Spirit at, at Jesus' baptism. John 14, 26, very helpful, says that Jesus says that after he ascends into heaven, the helper, the Holy Spirit will come and he will teach you. He will bring comfort to you. It will be as if my presence now is with you because I am in you through the, the, the Spirit. So the helper comes and he is called the Holy Spirit. And then in John 20, right after his resurrection, it says Jesus breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. So the, the picture we get is Jesus as the sender of the Spirit that after I'm gone, I will send him to you, and he breathes on the disciples, but that the, the Holy One, probably that John has in mind here, the anointing is the coming of the Holy Spirit into the life of the now regenerated person. It is the Holy Spirit that comes and, and, and takes hold of us, that lives within us. One of John's chief concerns for the believers is not only helping them to understand those who left so that they wouldn't be deceived, but it is to assure those that have remained that you are not remaining by chance. It's not they were the unlucky ones and you're somehow the lucky ones or that you have remained because you're just such good people and so smart. What he's wanting to encourage them with is the, the, the demonstration of your remaining, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That is God who continues to hold fast to you. They have remained because of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The Spirit is the one who regenerates. He's the one who takes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. He's the one who brings about new life in the person. The Holy Spirit is the one who dwells within the person. And, and John's also emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is the one that gives understanding, that gives uh, application of the, of the truth. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He said, it is because of the Holy Spirit that believers are able to discern and understand and avoid these subtle dangers that threaten them within the realm even of the Christian church itself. The, the, the significance of the Holy Spirit as that sort of mark of assurance is developed by Paul. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, when we were saved, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The, the, the mark of the authority of, of God, the, the taking us as his, is demonstrated by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. It is a message of security. 
You are his. He has stamped you as his by the very presence of his spirit within you. And so you remain in Christ because the Holy Spirit has sealed you as belonging to Christ. It is a work of God and a gift of his grace to hold us fast. And that comes about, as, as John says, by this anointing work. Um, by the way, this, this, this is not speaking to some believers, special believers who have received the anointing. That's just contrary to, 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 to some of the charismatic teaching that would say, well, you sort of, you, you get saved and then you're waiting for the, the real outpouring of the spirit, the, the, the real sort of second blessing. John is not saying that here. John is saying you all, it's second person plural, this anointing of the spirit, this assurance that you have that Christ is in you and that you are in Christ comes at your regeneration. It is from the beginning uh, that you have learned these things and know these things. John says you have all been anointed. Look again at uh, 26 and then especially verse 27. He'll reference this anointing again. I write these things, verse 26, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The, the emphasis first in verse 26 is these antichrists, these false teachers are actively trying to deceive you. He brings that up because he wants his readers to know that there is opposition there that wants to undercut the truth. They want to try to sell you on something that is wrong. There is no compromise on this. There is no sense in which we need gospel 2.0, that what you have been told from the beginning is true. And so know that, that, that these are trying to deceive. They've left and they want to take you with them. But then verse 27, just as verse 20 did, says, but... But God has already worked within the hearts of those that he is saving. And he has worked in such a way as to, to give his Holy Spirit to you, to give you assurance of the truth that you believe, and to give you what we, the theological term would be illumination. To, so that as you read the scriptures, presumably you read them differently now than you did when you were an unbeliever. They, 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 they become more clear. They, they become more convicting in terms of what they speak to your heart. Um, and, and, and they go at, at work in you as the, the sword of the Spirit, as the Word of God is intended. The, the Spirit is bringing the Word to bear on our being in, in such a way that it now is powerful and living and active, and the Holy Spirit brings that illumination. He gives you understanding that is to help guard you from being led astray. It's worth noting here that John does there in verse 27 say, um, it's anointing, you have no need that anyone should teach you. And you might be thinking, why am I here this morning <laughs> in that case? Because that sort of does your job in. Um, he writes that even as he essentially is teaching them. Here's John who has written the Gospel of John to teach them the life of Jesus Christ. And now he's written these three epistles and then Re Revelation, all of which is instruction. And so he's, he's not disregarding any New Testament, Testament gift of teaching or the role of the teaching elder in the church. What he's saying is that this assurance and, and the illumination of the Spirit is given to believers to protect you from false teachers so that, when someone comes and wants to teach you something else, when someone comes and says, hey, I've got this new revelation, I've got this new word from God, and, and it's this about Jesus Christ, or it's this insight, or it's whatever, and it doesn't, 
it doesn't actually root itself in scripture. It just sort of something that, that they're sort of giving to you, that that's where the, the, the warning is. You, you don't need that. You, you don't need to hear that. You actually have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who, when you heard the gospel and were saved, it was the Spirit in his power and grace that gave your heart, gave you a new heart and opened your eyes so that you now saw the truth and you now understand the gospel and you can articulate the gospel. I was a sinner, I am a sinner, and I was rescued from my sin and the consequences of my sin by Jesus Christ and by his death and resurrection. And so he says, you don't have need for somebody to come along and say, here's, here's some other work of him. The, the, the last verse in this section that we'll hit this morning is verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I mentioned to you last week, John's tendency to not be heavy on imperatives or commands is the second one in, in 1 John. Abide in him. So he set the, the whole scenario. Yes, there are antichrists. They can sound persuasive. They are trying to deceive you, but you know the truth. The gospel that changed you from the beginning, the Savior who transformed you, have not changed you can rest in those things. Jesus is who he said he was. The Holy Spirit, who he has given you, has given you certainty and understanding of your faith. You know the truth and you, you understand your identity. This is so much like John in his style to emphasize, look at who you are. Look at what God has done. Look how he has saved you by this gospel message. Look how he has given you his spirit to give you hope and assurance and understanding. And you have all of this. And in light of all this, your response should be to live for him. There's the, the, the sort of cooperative nature when we talk about growing in Christ. The, the salvation work, God is the one who saves. God is the one who gives life, who, who, who blesses us with a gift of faith so that we can respond to him. Here as we grow as believers, he's really stressing now that you have all of this, so now walk in it. In other words, don't, don't take away from this, well, because I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I don't have to do anything. I can just sit back because he does it all. And that, is that what you're saying? No. The, the, these things actually are incentives to counter the false teaching by living for Christ, by standing for what is true and by abiding. We are now empowered to walk in Christ and to live differently. We're not moving forward with some tentative hope that, that things will turn out okay. Our confidence is in the very helper that Jesus himself sent, who is the Holy One, who gives us assurance and calls to mind, as Jesus promised he would, calls to mind the very things Jesus taught. And so he says, little children. He, he wants once again to reinforce his love for them. Don't embrace things just because they are sold as spiritual truths. The world is still deceiving. There are those who would sit under the category of Christian that are still deceiving and are saying they've, they've got some, some truths for you that, that somehow don't quite square with scripture. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember what you trusted from the beginning. Know what you believe about Jesus Christ and walk in that. You have the word of God and you have the spirit of God to guide you in abiding in him. And then he says in closing, Jesus Christ is coming back. Your king is returning. It's, really, it's almost the bookend. We started this section with, hey, it's the last hour, and there's antichrists, and it, it looks perilous 
because we've got these people who are in our midst who now are going away and, and, and they're trying to deceive. And, and, and he comes back to saying, hey, brothers and sisters, it is the last hour and we need to live like it. We need to live as those who anticipate the return of our Savior because Jesus is coming for his people and he is coming to, to judge those false teachers and all who have opposed to him. And so live in light of that day. Live in a state of alertness, of, of preparedness, of, of thinking that Jesus Christ is coming soon because he is and walk in that light and walk confidently because ultimately the return of Christ will mark out clearly the distinctions between those who were of us but left and those who are his and have been sealed by the Spirit. And so brothers and sisters, continue to walk and the things that you've known since the beginning of your walk with Christ, continue to abide in those things, continue to obey him and seek him and depend on him. Our Savior's coming for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your coming is something that just stirs joy in our hearts. We know that it has been 2,000 years and the same sense of eager anticipation that John and his fellow believers had is ours today. We we long for the day when your kingdom is established, when you are clearly for the creation to see Lord of all and you make all things new. Lord, in, in the time between now and then, we pray for your spirit's ongoing work in our hearts, giving us understanding of scripture as we ponder life's questions, ponder what, what our next steps are as we ponder our interaction with the culture, help us to depend on your word, to, to walk in it, to seek wisdom from it. We pray for your spirit to give us understanding. We pray for your spirit to convict us, to do that gracious, gracious work of helping us to see our own sin so that we might turn from it and, and repent. We thank you for the work of the spirit and giving to us assurance and hope keeping our eyes focused on what lies before us and what is to come. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning, listening this morning online that, that, that is uncertain about these things, that is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, I pray that today would be the day when they would see that what Jesus did, his death on the cross, that is sufficient. That any who will turn to him and believe in him, turning from their sin and trusting in him, will find eternal life that Jesus Christ conquered sin on the cross. He defeated death in his resurrection and proved his power over sin and death so that he could free a people to walk and to abide in him. Lord, help this body of believers as we walk through this coming week, as we walk through challenges in the workplace or challenges with family or, or whatever it might be. Help us to be a people that would consciously be seeking to strive after you to walk in what you have called us to do and be obedient to you and, and following after Christ. Thank you for your spirit's enabling and power to do just that. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are coming again. It's in your name we pray, amen.